Welcome to the Truth Exchange Podcast, the unique program where we have conversations about worldview all through the lens of oneism and twoism. This lens is based on Romans 1.25. We've exchanged the truth of God for the lie, worship and serve creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. I'm your host, Joshua Gilo, and today I have a special guest with me, Dr. Cal Beisner, who is one of our senior teaching fellows. Dr. Cal Beisner is the founder and national spokesman of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, a network of over 60 Christian theologians, natural scientists, economists, and other scholars educating for biblical earth stewardship, economic development for the poor, and the proclamation and defense of the good news of salvation by God's grace received through faith in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. What an introduction. Dr. Cal Beisner, welcome to the program. Well, Josh, great. Thanks very much to be back with you. Really enjoy it. Cal, you um, recently are making a splash in social media world because there has been a group of evangelicals that came out saying they are pro-life, evangelical, and for Biden. Why is that a problem? Well, let's see. Ever heard the term oxymoron? Indeed. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's a problem in a number of different ways. Uh, uh, first of all, of course, there's the simple fact that the whole Democratic Party platform, I mean, just read the platform and you see the many, many ways in which it is contrary to biblical morality, biblical ethics. But in a much more direct, uh, focused way, uh, what they're doing is they're essentially they're stealing the term pro-life. And this is something that's been going on for, oh, 20 years or more uh, in, uh, among those who say that they want to adapt a consistent pro-life ethic in which we are in favor of life all the way from womb to tomb. Now, I'm in favor of life all the way from womb to tomb. The problem is that this phrase has been used to kind of sneak a different idea in through the door. Mm. And the way it happens is that uh, it ignores the, the history of how the term pro-life came to be. Now, you can look at all of the standard dictionaries, Merriam-Webster, Collins, Cambridge, Oxford, on and on, all the standard dictionaries look up the term pro-life, even Wikipedia itself. Uh, they all boil down to pro-life means opposition to abortion. Hmm. And the reason for that is that historically, the term arose in the context of describing opponents of the loosening of abortion restrictions in the 1960s and 1970s, and then especially opponents of the Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton decisions of the Supreme Court in 1973, uh, that essentially eliminated all state laws restricting abortion from the books in one fell swoop. Uh, so historically, the term pro-life has always meant opposition to abortion. Mm -hmm. But some folks like Ron Sider, uh, more famous for his book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, uh, in which the first few editions were pretty solidly socialistic, uh, he eventually did kind of move a little bit away from that uh, toward a more capitalistic free enterprise perspective. Uh, but Ron Sider, Jim Wallace, uh, Richard Mao, of longtime president of Fuller Theological Seminary, 
began using pro-life in a much broader sense. And uh, so they're saying in this statement that they've released called Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden, they're saying that things like uh, environmental stewardship, uh, opposition to air pollution or water pollution or climate change, these are pro-life issues. Uh, we're, or, or that that smoking is a pro-life issue, uh, namely since smoking threatens health, therefore it's pro-life to you know want to try to get people to stop smoking. Uh, I hate smoking, by the way, and <laughs> and I've never smoked, uh, so I would be perhaps a little bit uh, emotionally leaning toward that, except that. Uh, I don't think it's something that the state ought to be prohibiting among people. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, we're also told that uh, racism is a pro-life issue. Yeah. And so what happens is that you water down the meaning of pro-life and a whole lot of people then come to think that, oh, because this organization uh, wants to fight global warming, therefore it's pro-life. And so I'll be helping the pro-life, the anti-abortion cause, as much by supporting this organization as by supporting, you know, right to life or something of that sort. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a stealing of language. And that's something that the left seems to be really good at doing. Here's, a, here's some of their, their statements. Knowing that the most common reason women give for abortion is the financial difficulty of another child. We appreciate a number of democratic proposals that would significantly alleviate that financial burden. How would you respond? Well, um, first, I, I think it's very difficult to, uh, to confirm that indeed financial burden is the number one reason. Uh, but that's really uh, beside the point. The real point here is that what we're being told is that uh, that we need to solve the problem of abortion by putting more money into the hands of women who get abortions. Now, that's kind of like saying we need, the, we need to solve the problem of, of uh, you know, uh, murder done by burglars in the midst of a burglary gone by by putting more money into the hands of the burglars. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not the issue. Uh, the the issue is this, that the murder is wrong in the first place, and it ought to be illegal. And abortion is wrong in the first place. And it's not just wrong, it is a violation of one of the most fundamental laws that God has placed in every human heart. Uh, we get it clear back at Genesis 9, 6, whoso sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. That is how sacred human life is. When you intentionally take the life of an innocent human being, innocent in, in terms of not having violated some law that requires <laughs> the death penalty. Uh, when you do that, when you unjustly kill someone, uh, you've forfeited your own right mm -hmm. to live. Um, our need is, is not to make it a little bit easier for people to choose not to abort their children. Our need is to recriminalize the choice to abort a child. But now, you know, partly what's happening here too is that these folks are, are making a fundamental failure in ethics. 
in, in all my years of teaching ethics at Knox Theological Seminary, uh, back from 2000 to 2008, uh, I would always impress on students a couple of distinctions. One is the distinction between harm that is intentionally done and harm that is uh, negligently done or harm that is accidentally and unforeseeably done, right? The Bible makes that distinction very, very clearly. Uh, a man who premeditates the murder of another person, there is no, uh, no uh, uh, what, um, substitute penalty allowed for that. No ransom can be paid. That person must be executed. But in a crime of passion, the, the scripture says, if the person just fell into his hands, right? In a crime of passion, there is a substitute penalty permitted. It need not be execution because there's no premeditation here. The, the notion of intent is, is watered down. Then there are the situations where someone negligently harms another person. Uh, he's he he's uh, he's burning off a field to get rid of insect infestation, and he negligently allows that uh, fire to cross into a neighbor's field. There, uh, the penalty is much less than if he had intentionally gone over and burned the neighbor's field. And then there's total accident. You know, a man is out chopping wood. And in the midst of chopping wood, the, the head flies off of his axe and it hits another person who's out there chopping wood and it kills him. There is to be no penalty to that person. Mm -hmm. uh, so the scriptures carefully de uh, delineate different ethical consequences and dif different ethical content between intentional harm and negligent or accidental harm. Now, in abortion, every successful procedure results in the intentional killing of a human being. That's what abortion is, right? So it differs enormously from the harm that might come from some air pollution, some water pollution, uh, from even smoking. I mean, uh, the, the smokers don't intend to kill themselves. And to the extent that secondhand, secondhand smoke is harmful, and the actual scientific evidence on that is very, very slim, but to the extent that it is, smokers don't intend to be harming the people around them. Uh, so there's a significant difference there. Uh, so also with poverty, uh, even where someone, one person's poverty is caused by another person, the person who caused that usually didn't have in mind the intent that the, the impoverished person should die. Mm -hmm. He didn't set out to kill him, right? So that's the first big distinction is between intent and lack of intent. The second big distinction was that between death and reduced health. Mm -hmm. You know, very, very uh, little air pollution actually kills anybody. It may, uh, it may make people a little bit more vulnerable to this, that, or another respiratory disease, for example, but air pollution itself doesn't tend to kill people. 
it will slightly increase vulnerability. So the difference between killing and slight harm, uh, measurable harm, is another important ethical difference. And in abortion, every successful procedure is the intentional killing of a human being. In air pollution, in smoking, in climate change, in poverty, you don't have the intent to kill and you don't have the killing. And so for these folks to say these are pro-life issues is to completely uh, undermine the meaning of pro-life. That means it undermines the, pro, the real pro-life movement. Mm-hmm. And that means it makes it more difficult to get truly pro-life people elected to Congress and to state legislatures and the like, which means it is all the more difficult to achieve the actual ends of the pro-life movement. Excellent. Your piece that you just wrote for Cornwall Alliance is going to be up on the Truth Exchange website uh, by the time this episode airs. I'm also going to provide a link for it within the show notes of the episode. In this article that Dr. Cal, you wrote for uh, Cornwall, is that uh, there's a book that you wrote to, um, could you speak, it's the uh, How Does the Creation Care Movement Threaten the Pro-Life Movement? Would you like to speak a little bit about that before we move on? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, a, a longer, more detailed version of that article that we put on the Cornwall Alliance uh, page just also came out in Christian Post, mm. which is the same place where Cider and Mao published their article uh, announcing the release of their statement, Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden. And uh, by the way, uh, Babylon B has just done a marvelous uh, <laughs> parody of this, Pro-Life Evangelicals for Moloch. Mm-hmm. Is, is what it's titled, titled Moloch being, of course, the, uh, the Canaanite god to whom people sacrificed their children by throwing them into a fire. Uh, so I, I think, frankly, that that uh, kind of a parody is 100% deserved in this instance. Mm-hmm. Now, the book, uh, a short book, a booklet more, uh, more like, uh, How the Creation Care Met- Movement Threatens the Pro-Life Movement, Uh, looks particularly at one creation care organization called the Evangelical Environmental Network. And EEN had done a pro-life campaign for for fighting global warming, for climate change mitigation. And they had said that this was a pro-life issue. And they had billboards up around various cities around America equating this with pro-life. And I just made the simple point, look, ethically, these are not the same thing. Uh, You don't have the intention and you don't have the actual killing. Abortion is very different from any of these uh, environmental issues that EEN is is addressing. And uh, actually, at the time, this was... uh, uh, 2008, 9, 10, 11, that they were running the campaign. And I wrote a brief, simple uh, statement, a, a public declaration that this was an illegitimate use of the term pro-life. And it was signed initially by, uh, oh, I think it was about 30 different leaders, you know, presidents and vice presidents and the like of different pro-life organizations around America uh, who were condemning this way of using the term. And EEN uh, actually continued the campaign after that, despite this. Mm. 
And so eventually I, I decided to go ahead and, and write a full booklet about it. And so that's what this booklet does, is it, it, it shows how the campaign misrepresents the actual uh, ethical issues involved. That is available at cornwallalliance.org through our online shop. Now let's move on to the next and last item of our discussion for the podcast. In 2021, the spring of 2021, we have an online symposium that Dr. Jones has framed this event with the question of how should Christians articulate the deep truths of the gospel in today's caustic and hostile culture? Like never before, we are facing massive divisions within the culture and within the church. We're divided over how churches and beyond that, businesses, schools, should function during COVID-19. We're divided over how Christians should vote. We're divided over identity and sexuality. We're divided over issues of race, social justice. We're divided over issues of science, specifically areas of climate change. Dr. Beisner, is the world going to end in 2030? Uh, well, how do I know? That's in the <laughs> Lord's decision. <laughs> but if it ends in 2030, it won't be because of climate change, uh, at least not human-induced climate change. Um, you know, if, if God <laughs> decides to do, do something, if, if God for eternity past has had the plan to do something in 2030, fine. <laughs> but it's certainly not going to be because of climate change. And what's really ironic on this, uh, Josh, is that you can go through all of the massive technical reports that come out of the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and none of them even begins to hint at any, any notion that climate change is, is even the biggest threat facing humanity. Uh, let alone that uh, the world is going to end in 2030 or the world is going to end in 2050 or 2080 or 2100. Uh, 2100. Uh, you know, the IPCC, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, basically uh, the scenarios that it, that it uh, provides show that humanity is going to continue to uh, improve its well-being even in the midst of the worst warming that can be projected, mm. driven by human activity. It, it, uh, it gives different scenarios for future global average temperature based on different uh, uses of energy, particularly fossil fuel energy. And business as usual uh, means basically the world does nothing to try to reduce carbon dioxide emissions, and we just continue using fossil fuels the way we've been using them. Indeed, we use more and more of them, and that puts more and more CO2 into the atmosphere, and that's what leads to the warmest scenario, right? Mm -hmm. Even in that scenario, by the end of this century, the poorest countries in the world today have grown their economies to the point where they are significantly wealthier than the United States is now. Uh, now, granted that if you have income equivalent to, say, the bottom 5% of Americans, you can thrive in any climate from the Arctic Circle to the Sahara Desert or the Brazilian rainforest. But if you're trying to live on the equivalent of about $1.50 a day, you can't thrive in the greatest tropical paradise 
what that tells us is that poverty is a, is a far greater threat to human well-being than anything related to climate. And consequently, even just working from the IPCC's own uh, reports, you can say poverty is a greater threat than climate change. And actually fighting climate change by forcing a rapid transition from fossil fuels, which right now provide about 85% of all the energy human beings use to to grow food, to process it, to make clothing and shelter and transportation and medical care and, and communications and everything else. All the things that we do require energy. The forced rapid transition from fossil fuels to uh, wind and solar always results in slower economic development it slows the conquest of poverty in those parts of the world that have not yet achieved it. And it can even push people back into poverty who had grown out of it. Well, if poverty is a greater threat than climate change, then it makes no sense whatsoever okay, so to then increase we, poverty by fighting climate change. We have talking leaders. I mean, even down from Greta Thunberg, AOC, Bill Nye, the science guy, uh, just recently with the... Who, by the way, is not a scientist, but that's okay. <laughs> Neither am I, by the way. <laughs> My, <laughs> I, I'm just thinking of all the, the, the young people listening to this podcast going, wait, my, but, but he was my scientist. Um, and, and then Amy uh, Coney Barrett at her hearing just recently, they, she was probed on this question. This is science. Do you deny the science? There's science, 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 science. What is the science? I mean, you, you, you've just spoken about that, that poverty is, is actually more a greater threat. And you were just talking about the reports here. What science are they referring to that's in contrast? Well, um, a variety of different environmental activist organizations have, for the last 25, 30 years, promoted the notion that uh, an overwhelming consensus exists among scientists that human activity is the primary cause of global warming over at least the last 60 years, possibly the last 200 years, and that the warming has already become very dangerous and it is likely to become catastrophic before the end of this century. Those activist organizations, those advocacy organizations have tried to promote that message very hard and they've spent many, many millions of dollars doing it. Uh, and so lots of folks just hear that message and that's all they get to hear, including plenty of people in positions of elected government. Uh, that's essentially all they hear. And they don't go behind that to, for instance, the reports of the UN IPCC they don't go behind that to the work of other scientists outside the IPCC. And so they don't get to discover that in fact, uh, there is no such consensus. Uh, besides the fact, by the way, that consensus is not a scientific value. Consensus is a political value. You find out who won an election by counting votes. You don't find out how much warming comes from adding CO2 to the atmosphere by counting votes. You, can, you find it out by doing the really, really difficult uh, scientific work of, of atmospheric physics and ocean physics and the, uh, the he physics of heat exchange and so on. Uh, that 
becomes very, very difficult indeed. And, and when you really start to get into this, and, and by the way, I, I mentioned uh, a, a moment ago that I'm not a scientist. That is the case. But I will tell you a couple of things uh, in my favor about this, if I may. Uh, one is that over the last 15 years or so since I formed the Cornwall Alliance, uh, I've done, I would guess, at least three times as much, probably four or five times as much work studying the scientific issues of climate change as the work I did earning my PhD in history from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Uh, I've, I've read over 50 books and many thousands of articles on the science of climate change, many, you know, hundreds of those articles, peer-reviewed journal pieces. Uh, and, and so I think I'm pretty well up on this. I routinely communicate with climate scientists at the very tops of their fields. Uh, and indeed, uh, about seven years ago, one of them, Dr. Roy Spencer, uh, principal research scientist in climatology at the University of Alabama, who's also a senior fellow for the Cornwall Alliance, uh, said to me in conversation, you know, Cal, you know all the arguments pro and con on, on uh, uh, man-made global warming better than any climate scientists I know, because we all study our own little narrow slices of the pie. You read all across everything coming out. Um, and then just a couple of months ago, we had Dr. Neil Frank, who was the longest serving director of the, UN, the uh, National Hurricane Center, and is a meteorologist, climate scientist, uh, just outstanding, legendary figure in the field. And on, a, uh, on one of the From the Stacks live stream programs that we do with the Cornwall Alliance over, over uh, Facebook and YouTube, Neil said, uh, I, I had said something about the fact that I'm not actually a climate scientist and Neil responded, Yes, but you know the arguments on this really, really well. So, uh, no, I'm not a scientist, but uh, hey, if, if Greta Thunberg, uh, starting at age 16, could speak about this, I think I probably can too. Indeed. Uh, and the, the scientific evidence is, is this. I think if, if we can sum it up really, really briefly. Yes, carbon dioxide is what's called an infrared absorbing gas. That means it absorbs heat as heat moves from the surface of the earth back out towards space, and it radiates that heat out, and some of it comes back toward the surface of the earth, and therefore uh, pretty much basic physics tells us that as we add that to the atmosphere, we should be making the lower atmosphere a little bit warmer and the upper atmosphere a little bit colder because we're not allowing as much heat to get up there. Uh, and that's, that's pretty well basic physics. But by the way, basic physics also tells you that if you drop a rock and a feather at the same instant from the same elevation, they will hit the bottom at the same moment, unless they're in air, <laughs> in which case the rock plummets and the feather just kind of wafts down little by little. And if it's windy, the feather might blow up into a tree and get stuck and never come down, right? right. So basic physics is not enough to answer the really interesting question, which is not whether, in fact, human emission of CO2 does warm the surface of the earth, but how much? Huh. And computer models that have been used ever since the 1970s have generally said, well, if, for example, we were to double the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, 
we would say that the direct effect of that would be to warm the lower atmosphere by, uh, I mean, at the surface by something on the order of one to 1.2 degrees Celsius. Uh, one degree Celsius is 1.8 degree Fahrenheit. That's not a problem. Uh, nobody thinks that that's, that's a serious problem. In fact, there's plenty of evidence that it's, it's overall quite beneficial. The notion that it could be a problem all depends on assuming that there are various different positive feedbacks from that. That is that, all right, that little bit of warming might cause something else to happen that brings about more warming. And the primary idea there is, is that uh, with warmer temperatures at the surface, you get more evaporation. Water vapor itself is also an infrared absorbing gas or a greenhouse gas. And so as water vapor concentration rises in the atmosphere, you're going to warm the earth even more. So that's called a positive feedback mechanism. Mm -hmm. It increases an initial change. And so the computer models based on that have instead said, okay, the actual amount of warming from a doubled CO2 concentration in the atmosphere might turn out to be a combination of the direct one degree Celsius uh, plus another oh, two, three, four degrees. So they're tending to say uh, one and a half to four and a half degrees Celsius of warming from a doubling of CO2. And that's, that's the models. And a lot of people have a tendency to treat models as if they were evidence, but models are not evidence. Models are simply sophisticated hypotheses. And in science, what we do is we, we make a hypothesis. We say, if my understanding of how the world works is true, then I would expect to see these results from these causes. And then we go out and we actually look in the real world where those causes happen, and we see if those results come about. If what we observe in the real world contradicts our predictions, then our theory, our hypothesis, is wrong. And it doesn't matter how beautiful the hypothesis was or how smart you are when you made it or anything else. Uh, the late Nobel Prize winning physicist Richard Feynman said, this is the key to science. If observation contradicts prediction, your guess is wrong, period. Well, that's what we know about the models. Uh, for uh, I mean, you can, you can run the models backward. You can do hindcast with the models. And of course, we can't compare observations in the future with, with predictions now because the future hasn't happened yet, right? But we can compare observations in the past with the hindcasts of the models. And unless you do a whole bunch of ad hoc adjustments to the models, that's called curve fitting, the models can't match the past temperature. And indeed, what we see is that on average, they, they simulate two to three, even four times as much warming as actually observed over the relevant period. That means the models are wrong. That means the theory on which the models are based is wrong. We don't, know, we don't have to know how it's wrong. We don't, know how, we don't have to know how to correct it to know that it's wrong. And the much better estimates of the warming effect of added CO2 are based not on modeling, uh, not on, on pure modeling, but on modeling that is constrained by empirical observation yeah. that says, okay, these are the observations over the past. We have to, we have to 
make sure that these models, when they hindcast, can match that before we can trust them about the future. And when we do that, the empirically constrained models tell us instead that uh, uh, warming for a doubling of CO2 would more likely be in the range of, say, 0.75 to maybe 2 degrees Celsius. Again, nobody thinks that that's catastrophe. Mm -hmm. So I mean, that's kind of a summary of the science, but there's so much more to it. And, and I'd, I'd really hope that a lot of your listeners would go to cornwallalliance.org, click on the landmark documents uh, tab, cornwallalliance.org, click on landmark documents and read some of our major papers there. One, for instance, called A Call to Truth, Prudence and Protection of the Poor 2014. The evidence, the, the, uh, I've forgotten the subtitle, but <laughs> this is a major paper by a, uh, a leading climatologist and a leading economist of climate and energy uh, policy uh, that I think will really help your, your listeners on this. Go back. IPCC stands for what? Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And that's part which, of by the yeah, that's it's uh, it's under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Uh, that and the World Meteorological Organization are the sort of parent organizations of the IPCC. And even there, there's something very important to keep in mind. Uh, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was worked out at the 1992 uh, 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 UN Global summit in uh, Rio de Janeiro, uh, the UNFCCC defines climate change as change to global temperature driven by human action. Now, let that sink in a minute. That means that climate change driven by changes in solar energy output by uh, ocean cycles, uh, by a change in the tilt of the earth toward the sun, a change in the earth's uh, orbit around the sun. And we know that all of these things happen. Uh, by a change in solar magnetic wind output, which in turn uh, regulates the amount of cosmic rays that enter, enter the atmosphere, which in turn regulate the formation of cloud nuclei, which in turn regulate the formation of clouds, which in turn reflect sunlight back into space, cooling the earth on the part of lower clouds, or uh, as there are fewer of them, the earth warms because more of that solar energy comes into the earth. All of these things are utterly natural, but according to the UNFCCC, those don't meet the definition of climate change. Mm. And so when the IPCC was founded, its charter was to look for the causes of climate change, but it's a child of the UNFCCC. So what climate change is it looking at? Not natural, but only human-induced. And so, you know, you tell scientists, look for, you know, X, Y, or Z. They'll find it. <laughs> It may be very, very rare and tiny, but they'll find it somewhere, right? <laughs> if you don't ask them to look for A, B, and C too, they won't look for A, B, and C. So this is why the IPCC focuses so constantly on human uh, contributions and misses all these natural contributions. 
And actually, the, the statistical correlations make it far more likely that it's changes in solar activity and, and ocean cycles and the like that have been the primary drivers of climate change over the last 60, 150, 200 years, thousands of years, if you're, if you're into old earth geology, millions and billions of years, uh, not human activity. Mm. Let's talk about, uh, or let's camp on that, about human contribution. What can, or specifically Christian contribution, what can Christians do to be good stewards of creation yeah, uh, you know, I think the first thing that we need to do is to uh, apply First Thessalonians five twenty one. This has been one of my life verses uh, from my early teen years. The Apostle Paul wrote, "Test all things, hold fast what is good." And you know, particularly today, in the midst of the the progressive movement, the woke movement, uh, you know, call it what you will. Uh, there seems to me to be a movement among especially younger Christians that is so driven by compassion, which is a wonderful thing. I mean, that, the, the motivation here is, is fabulous. And I just say, amen, praise the Lord. God bless you. I'm so glad to see that. Compassion for people who are suffering in various different ways. Yes. The difficulty is that you know, when I am strongly motiv- motivated about something, it becomes very easy for me to think right away that whatever it is I think is the solution to that problem, we got to do it. And I forget that hell is paved with good intentions. Mm -hmm. I forget the law of unintended consequences. I forget to do what Paul told me to do, which is to test all things, hold fast what is good. a, A very important economist of the last 50 years or so, uh, wrote uh, in in a book called The State Against Blacks. Uh, and ordinarily, I wouldn't even mention the, uh, the skin color, <laughs> the melatonin, uh, the, 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 uh, the, yeah, uh, mel- yeah, melatonin, melatonin. Of, uh, of an economist, because what, why should it be rel- relative, right? Why should it be uh, uh, relevant? Um, but um, it's not melanin, not melatonin. Melatonin is what helps you sleep. <laughs> melanin <laughs> is what determines the darkness of your skin, right? And Vodibachum wonderfully said at one point, you know, don't you tell me that God doesn't love you as much as he does me just because he didn't give you as much melanin as he gave me. Uh, wonderful quote. Anyway, this, the author of this book, The State Against Blacks, is Dr. Walter Williams, who is himself a black economist. And in this book, he, he goes through all of the major federal policies intended to help blacks from 1960 onward. And he shows how, without exception, every single one of them harmed the people they were supposed to help, mm. right? Uh, the law of un- unintended consequences. So in this book, actually in an end note to the book, and it ought instead have been you know, a frontispiece. <laughs> he wrote, truly compassionate policy requires dispassionate analysis. That is, when I have the passion to help someone or some group of people, 
the first thing I have to do is to set that passion aside for a while and dispassionately, carefully study the actual consequences of what I want to do to help. Because all too often, what I want to do to help can turn out harming instead. Excellent. And so, you know, if we want to be good stewards of the earth, the first thing we need to do is to really study hard uh, mm -hmm. because there are all sorts of things that are very, very surprising about good earth stewardship, which is, is why, you know, frankly, uh, I've gathered the work of, you know, almost 70 scholars, uh, roughly a third natural scientists, roughly a third economists and policy wonks, and roughly a third theologians and philosophers and ethicists and the like, uh, because it is just uh, a much more difficult thing than most people realize. So, but what can we do? Uh, you know, some things are, are pretty simple. Don't be wasteful. You know, don't litter. Don't throw your trash out the car window and you're driving down the highway. Uh, you can go out and do, uh, do, do uh, stream bed cleanup, things like that. Uh, turn the lights off when you're not using them. I mean, my goodness, that makes sense anyway, just in terms of keeping your utility bills down, right? <laughs> uh, all kinds of things make sense. But some things that you would think make sense turn out not to make sense. Uh, um, <laughs> recycling aluminum is very, very sensible. Recycling paper, it turns out, more often than not, and it can vary from circumstance to circumstance, but recycling paper, it turns out, tends not to be as stewardly of the earth as just going ahead and growing additional trees and cutting them down and turning them into paper. Mm. Uh, that's because there are some pretty toxic chemicals involved in cleaning the paper in the recycling process. I hated, I hated recycled paper when I was in school. Hated it. It's the worst paper. Uh, your, your pencil, it wouldn't, it, you couldn't write on it. It was terrible. Well, that's, partly, that's partly because every time it goes through a, you know, a, uh, a step uh, or a, a repetition of being recycled. Okay. The very first time you recycle some paper, it's never been recycled before. You can get pretty decent paper out of it. Okay. But every time it goes again, right. <laughs> the length of the wood fibers in that paper decreases. Ah. So instead of starting off with fibers that might be, you know, a, a centimeter long, now all at once you're dealing with fibers that are, you know, uh, a millimeter long and they just don't cling together as well. So the paper tears more easily. Uh, you can be writing over it with a sharp tipped pen and it, it, it tears or it, the, the, uh, the, the ink will spread through it more and it will, it will just be gross to look at. I've seen some That's of what happens in recycling paper. You I've can basically some, yeah. do one or two levels of it, and after that, it's it's useless. I've seen some of those reports where they've they've done the um, electric cars, and that they're just as bad for the environment as an old yeah Mustang. Uh, one of the classics of that um, is actually mentioned in a, uh, a documentary that we at the Cornwall Alliance distribute. We didn't produce it. A uh, young man uh, named J.D. King produced it. Uh, but it's called Blue, uh, mm. which is <laughs> uh, as an alternative to green. And his motto is that we should beautify, liberate, utilize, enjoy. Uh, mm. So this is Blue. 
and uh, Steve Hayward, who was the, uh, the primary author and editor of an annual index of leading environmental indicators uh, that came out for about uh, 15 years or so. Uh, <laughs> Steve Hayward points out that you can leave a 1965 Ford Mustang parked in a driveway, starting with a full tank of gas, and the, the volatile compound emissions from that Mustang uh, just through the evaporation of gas from its closed gas tank, right, will exceed the emissions from, uh, I think at that point when this was done, this would have been a 2012 Mustang driving down the highway. <laughs> because we have made such immense improvements in emission controls mm. on uh, automobiles since that time. So there are all kinds of surprising things. So real careful study is, is needed. One of the things that I think a lot of Christians can do uh, if they really care about the environment is to pursue careers as chemical and industrial and electrical and, and material engineers. I love engineers. Engineers are problem solvers. Mm -hmm. You say, we got this problem. We need to fix it somehow. We need to solve this problem. You go to an engineer. He says, all right, we'll figure out a way to do this, right? Well, there are all kinds of different ways that I believe uh, engineers can find ways for us to turn things that are now waste into resources. The better we get at doing that, the more we will keep waste from harming the world. It's engineers who figure out how to get more miles per gallon out of gasoline. It's engineers who figure out how to, uh, how to minimize the amount of, of resources that go into making enough steel to build a bridge across a river that doesn't collapse. It's engineers who do these things. So I, I think a lot of Christians ought to be pursuing careers in engineering if they, if they want to see us solve environmental mm. problems. Well, we are out of time. For those listeners, again, you can visit the Truth Exchange website. We're going to post Dr. Cal Beisner's article, but you can also visit their website at Cal, or Cal, not Cal, cornwallalliance.org. Please also subscribe to their newsletter as well as prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. Great team of folks over there. Uh, and then, of course, Dr. Beisner has been a longtime friend of Truth Exchange and is one of our senior fellows. Cal, thank you for being on the program today. Well, thank you very much, Josh. And by the way, I, I should mention that Peter Jones is also one of Cornwall Alliance's senior fellows. And uh, uh, he has been a tremendous resource and encouragement to me for, oh, goodness gracious now, going back to the early 1990s. So uh, well over 25 years. Uh, it's, it's been just a blessing to have the partnership that uh, Cornwall Alliance and Truth Exchange have. And I'm delighted for this opportunity. Thanks, Josh. This concludes our episode of the Truth Exchange podcast, a unique program where we have conversations about worldview all through the lens of oneism and twoism. Be sure to drop us a line. Let us know how you think we're doing or let us know about anything that you would like to see us address in upcoming episodes. Remember, this podcast is only made possible from friends like you.